Lord God, we know that you are the God who comes into this world. This world is yours. This universe is yours. You created it so that we would have a place to be with you and to be with each other. And Lord God, we know that this world is not the way you created it to be. It is broken. That our bodies wear out and they fail us. That this world is no longer geared for our protection and provision, but people suffer harm because of this world and because of the brokenness of each other. And you are the God who comes into the mess. You are the God who comes into all the difficult stuff of life. And Lord God, would you meet with us this morning? For those of us who have difficult things, would you speak to us in the middle of that? Would you let us know that you are with us? Lord God, we present our hearts to you and to your word. We ask that you would do surgery in us. Lord God, would you meet with us, please? In the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Um, for the stewards in the room who are wondering if we've forgotten about communion and about offering, we haven't, but I might. If it looks like I'm going to forget before the end of the service, someone please interrupt me. Corinthians chapter 7. been a few weeks since we've been in Corinthians. Um, last week we had uh, Pastor Yoshu Johnson here uh, with a whole lot of the Karen young people that came up from Werribee and a huge thank you um, to everyone who was involved with catering and with preparation. They absolutely had their socks knocked off. It was just, well not as in knocked off but <laughs> it's going to be one of those mornings I think. Um, they were incredibly blessed, really, really, really blessed. They had never gone on a missions trip uh, in Australia before. Some of them have not left suburban Melbourne or, or Werribee since they've come across to Australia as refugees. Um, so for them, you were their first experience of what Australia is like and what a wonderful experience it was, um, that they could come, they could share their songs and then enjoy hospitality. It was just absolutely uh, wonderful and I've, I've yet even had more messages come through from Pastor Yoshu just saying thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Bob, please pass on to the church family that we were very humbled by their love and by their generosity and their hospitality. Every carload that left here left with a plate of dessert in it. It was, it was great. Really, really wonderful. Um, but the weeks before that, of course, May, we, we wanted to have a focus on missions for the month of May. That's why we've also been praying for our, um, for our church missionaries as well, uh, in particular through there. Those of you who've been getting the newsletters will have seen that we, we try and maintain um, contact with our missionaries and, and the information we have we pass on. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in Corinthians, but when we were in Corinthians last, we sent the kids out because we needed to have a talk about the start of chapter 7. And I'll just reread the first seven verses. And it says this. Um, Paul is now talking about the first big topic that the Corinthian church had written to him about, now that he's done sorting out a whole lot of uh, leadership stuff and examples of the way that leadership wasn't functioning well in Corinth. Look, uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says this. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. End quote. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. 
The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And we talked about Platonistic dualism. We talked about the philosophy that was uh, creeping into the Corinthian church and that some people thought you could do anything with your body and it didn't affect you spiritually. Other people thought that you could just disconnect from the physical world. Um, and I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but we, we had a look at those different things and that really what Paul is calling people back to is oneness, the kind of oneness that we see um, in the Godhead, the kind of oneness that we see um, that marriage was designed to be. And so as we go on this week, we're going to have a look from verse 8 actually through to verse 24, which depending on which translation or which edition uh, which English translation of the scriptures you have is chopped up into different sections. Um, but we're going to go the whole way through to verse 24 because Paul, between verse 8 and verse 24, is making one point. And he uses a couple of examples to make that point. Um, but we're going to read through the passage. We're going to cover off some obvious things. And then we're really just going to ask some questions for ourselves to take home around this one point that Paul is making. So please read with me from verse 8. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Not a single amen. But, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion, or in an older translation, to burn with lust. To the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband, but... If she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. We're going to talk about what that means. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Fascinating phrase. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. That's, that's going to be our main point this morning. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. 
For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Remain is the key word that keeps turning up throughout this passage. We're going to talk about remaining this morning because that's actually what Paul begins saying here to people who are unmarried, who are widows, people who are husbands and wives, uh, people who are circumcised, people who are slaves, any of those things. Paul's point is this. When God got hold of you, you were already somewhere in life. And it is tempting for us to believe that when God gets hold of us, we we go, oh, okay, my life is going to be a whole lot more spiritual if I change all this stuff about it. Now, God transforms us. God changes what's valuable to us. God changes our sense of identity. God changes the way we do conflict. God changes the way we do finance. God changes the way we do relationships. Absolutely. But Paul is writing this to the Corinthian church to correct some behaviors. And as we have a look at what Paul is writing to them about, we see some of the strange stuff that was going on. And it was strange then, it's equally strange now. Let's start with verse 8. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, to remain unmarried as I do. It's the same word there, to stay, to remain. But then Paul gives a a concession in verse 9. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul here is saying to single people, those who are not yet married and those who have found themselves single on the other side of marriage, to say, you know what? You don't have to get married in order to be more spiritual. If you are single or, or if you are widowed or a widower, it's, it is actually okay. God is with you where you are. It is okay to remain. Then he says this to the married couple, verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, Don't separate. But if someone does, verse 11, again, the concession, they must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to their husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. This is one thing that happens. Divorce is is a a terrible thing. It's uncomfortable. I would not wish it on my worst enemy. Um, it's, It's so incredibly wounding to everyone involved. When people are not able to go on being in a relationship with each other, Paul here is saying it is not as though when God gets hold of you, you have to leave your marriage. It it scares me and it shocks me sometimes when there are people who, who profess faith in Jesus Christ and they say things like this, God told me um, to marry this other person instead. God told me I need to leave my husband or leave my wife. Or, you know, we were going through a difficult patch and God provided this other person. God does not do that. That is completely the opposite of what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches here is even if you're in a very, very difficult marriage, God is with you. You do not need to go outside of that in order to become more spiritual, in order to become more holy, in order to be closer to God. Verse 12, Paul then says this, To the rest I say, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And then Paul does the other gender there in verse 13. That when someone is already in a relationship and they come to faith, 
again, they can be faced with this question is to go, God is now the center of my life. How can I, how can I pray with my spouse when they're not a believer? How can we raise children together when they're not a believer? And Paul here is saying, if they are prepared to stay with you, stay with them. Verse 14, here is why. For the unbelieving person has been sanctified. The word sanctified literally means set apart. In the original language, it's exactly the same as the word holy. They have been made holy. They have been set apart. They have actually been been brought into the orbit of Jesus Christ himself. They are actually no longer what they were. And as long as they are attached to you, they've been brought near to Christ. The unbelieving wife has been sanctified or set apart through her believing husband. And here is this extraordinary phrase in verse 14. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Your children are not distant from God. They, they themselves actually now receive something from you. They can receive godly parenting. They can receive instruction in the faith. They themselves can see God at work in you. There is something now near to God about these kids. This particular passage of Scripture was so kind of uh, profoundly set upon by the early church. Uh, we find even in the 3rd century, in the 200s, one of the early church leaders, a guy by the name of Irenaeus, talks about this practice of Christianity. Early on in Christianity, what happened is um, many groups of Christians, um, looking at the way Paul and Silas baptized the jailer in the book of Acts, they said, you know what, baptism is now the sign of the covenant community. So they used baptism a different way to the way that Baptists today use it. We use baptism as an indicator that you yourself have faith. In the early church, they just applied it as a symbol to anyone and everyone. That if, if your parents were, were followers of the Lord, then as you were a child, you would receive the sign of the covenant community. They would baptize you as a child. And over the last two millennia, it's changed and it's, the symbol is used in different ways by different groups of Christians. But in the third century, if one of your parents was Christian, then you would have been baptized by the church. If neither of your parents were Christian, you would not have been baptized by the church. That's how seriously they took this to go, there is something at work in the life of these kids that if one of their parents has laid hold of Jesus Christ, then, then the sign of the community of Christ is now attached to these kids because they can expect that there is a godly inheritance. Something is going to be at work in their parents that's going to make it through to them. This passage of Scripture, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15, but, concession, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. Have a look here from verse 12 down to verse 15. So verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, but verse 12, 13, and 14, he's talking to the believer. Actually, everything above this is talking to the believer, but specifically uh, verse 12, 13, 14 is if someone is in a, a relationship where one person is of faith. There is a different set of expectations on someone who's not a believer than on someone who's a believer. There is a different set of expectations that if God is at work in you and your spouse is not a believer, there is an expectation from God on you that you are going to continue loving that person in the way that God loves you. As you have received grace, you are going to give grace. Even though 
even though that person doesn't necessarily get it or they don't understand or they're not interested in it, to continue loving the way God has loved you. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. If you are abandoned, if you are abandoned, Paul here says that you are not bound in such circumstances. It's worth noting here that that when it says not bound, it's not referring to that you are not bound to to that marriage or to that relationship. I know we can read it and it kind of looks that way in English, but it actually refers to being not bound to renounce your faith. If you are a person of faith and your spouse is not, and they go, you know what, I'm leaving and I'm abandoning you, you are not so bound to that person that you must renounce Christ. Again, divorce is a terrible thing. Relationships breaking apart is is a really, really, really nasty thing. And I'm not wanting to push a bruise this morning. But we need to understand the way God works in these situations. And here in verse 15, Paul gives us this principle. You are not bound. God has called us to live in peace. God has called us to live in peace. The aim in that situation is not to go after that person and try and force them to convert. He summarizes it in verse 16. How do you know whether you will save your spouse? How do you know whether you will save your spouse? It's easy for us to to kind of pause there and focus there and say these are lessons in marriage. But actually, there's a larger lesson here that Paul is describing, and it's about remaining, which is why we're going to have a look from 17 through to 24 as well. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. We see that between the letters of the New Testament, Paul gives some instructions to the church in Ephesus, that he doesn't give to Galatia or Philippi or Thessalonica. But here Paul is saying this is a rule that he gives everyone across the board. This is a universal teaching of Paul the Apostle. You should live in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to you. That's why it's in the green up there. And that's why it's in the green in verse 19 and verse 20. Um, You should remain in the situation you were in when God called you. It turns up again in 24. And then he uses the example here of being circumcised or uncircumcised. I don't know how a man would become uncircumcised. I don't want to think about that. Um, But this is also then why Paul talks about someone who is a slave. Uh, We need to talk for a moment, um, just for a moment, about slavery in the ancient world. If you got into severe debt that you couldn't pay, in the ancient world, declaring bankruptcy and everyone going, "Oh, oh, okay, that's really bad, you can't run a business for five years, That was not the way it worked in the ancient world. You would become a slave. You would end up being literally owned by another person until such time as the debt was paid. In some ancient nation states, like in Athens, you would have government-owned slaves. In ancient Sparta, they had government-owned slaves. And it was, I hesitate to use the word acceptable. It was part of the way that their debt and employment system worked. And a person could become free. A person could pay their debts off. And what we see is, is the gospel interacting with that 
cultural dynamic. Um, But we also see here in the text some principles here. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. The one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Regardless of your external circumstances, your identity has changed and shifted. Again, it's, just, it's the same point Paul has been making to, to these married couples or people in relationship or to people who are singles or widowers. Regardless of your external situations, what's gone on in here has changed. Were you, a, um, were you free when you were called? You are now Christ's slave. In other words, all because you're a free person, don't think you can look down your nose at someone who's a Christian and a slave because you are now a slave to Christ as well. Uh, as well. Paul here is equalizing the status between someone who is a freed person and someone who is a slave. But then he says, you were bought at a price, verse 23, do not become slaves of human beings. Again, this idea of just remain. Don't become a slave of someone else. Remain. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. See, one is not more spiritual than another. Single is not more spiritual than married. Married is not more spiritual than single. Free is not more spiritual than slave. Circumcised is not more spiritual than uncircumcised. We can continually do this stuff in our own walk where the grass is greener. Going, you know what? If only this thing about my external situation changed, then I would be able to get on with the Lord more. Then I would have a closer walk with Jesus. If, if only I had a, a, a husband or a wife, or if only I had a different husband or a different wife, or if only my body was different, or if only my status was different, or if only my my state was different, if only my employment was different. Paul here is saying that this is a rule he gives to everyone. Remain. Just, Just push the pause button and remain. Because if if God has met you where you are, if he is walking with you where you are, if he has called you where you are, then if we go, okay, Lord, you've come near to me, but now I need something else to complete my faith, what are we saying about God? Because we're saying something about God. We're saying that God is not enough. If we're saying, Lord, you know, I love you, but I, I can't, I can't, you know, journey forward in my faith until this relationship thing changes or this finance thing changes or or this employment thing changes or or until my physical body is different than what it is or any of these other sort of things. We're saying Jesus is not enough. We're saying we actually want something else. Maybe underneath that we're saying, God, I I don't trust that you love me right now, so I'm going to do something else just just to assure myself that you love me enough. Does God love me? Yes, he does, but he'd love me more if I was thinner. Does God love me? Yes, but he would love me more if if I had a spiritual spouse. Does God love me? Yes, but he would love me more if, if I worked a job that was more spiritual. What we're saying underneath this is that we don't trust him. We're saying that we don't trust him. I remember when I was a teenager, it was it was the 90s, and the 90s were interesting. Anyone else here remember the 90s? The 90s were a little bit interesting. So the church I was involved in was a church that had a lot of shoulder pads and plastic earrings. It was, you know, late 80s, early 90s. 
I'm not going to ask for a show of hands as to who here had a perm. But there... Oh, confession. Okay, yeah. Confession is good for the soul. But I, I remembered, and, and it happened even without thinking that you would go to a gathering of Christians and whether it was you know a home group or whether it was a church service, whether it was sort of like a conference type environment, whatever it was, and there was almost like this slightly more spiritual fashion than yours. And I remember as a, as a young teenager, it was desert boots. <laughs> yeah, some, yeah, some waving, some nodding. Yeah. It was desert boots. And I remember the guy who taught me piano in the church. I thought he, you know, that he, he was walking really, really closely with the Lord. Lovely guy. Lovely, lovely, lovely guy. And he had these desert boots and he would wear them mostly undone. That was part of the look as well. You remember? It was like parachute pants with elastic around the bottom of the cuff. But I thought, that's what I need. And if I do that, then I'm going to be a little bit more spiritual. I remember there was, we joked about it for a while that there was a uh, quite a famous um, musician in Australia, and whenever this lady was involved, you know, doing conferences or anything, she had on a coat that came to about here, and it was beige, and she always wore this beige coat, and all of a sudden, all these beige coats appeared in the church because people just wanted to be a little bit more like that person. But we do it. We do it. We do it when we think of our parents sometimes. It's tempting sometimes to think back to our grandparents and go, what did they do? What did my parents do? These other people who who walk with the Lord, you know, what kind of Bible do they have? Oh, I need to get one of those Bibles. We do this stuff all the time. The grass is greener. I could just be a little bit more spiritual. I can just change something in my life. And how heartbreaking is it for Paul as a pastor to be writing to a church where it seems pretty clear some of them had abandoned their spouses. Paul does give concessions here to go, look, if things aren't working out, yes, there are things that can happen. You know, if, if someone uh, abandons you, you know, that's different. But here he's, he's, he's sketching out the borders of this very, very broad idea, let us remain, just let us remain. It's not an excuse to stay in in sin. Paul's really clear about that. It's not an excuse to go, uh, all right, God's okay with someone who loves him just going fishing for any person who doesn't love him. He covers that over in verse 39. But this very broad idea of going, let us remain. I sat with this, with this idea and I went, Lord, where else do we see this in the scriptures? And I was reminded particularly of, of some people we've heard about recently, of King David and also of Joseph, that when the Lord met with David and when David was anointed to be king, David did not stop being a shepherd. God did not just pluck him out of that. Over the passage of time, other things in his life changed, but God met him where he was and God stayed with him where he was. It's the same with Joseph. The Lord was, was with Joseph when he was looking after sheep and goats and the flock. And when he got thrown in the well, the Lord was with him in the well. When he was in, enslaved in Egypt, the Lord was with him. When he was in prison, the Lord was with him. And I just want to put this to you this morning. Maybe God is with you right where you are. Let me change that. Of course God is with you right where you are. Whatever is going on, however spiritual you feel or don't feel, however much you like or dislike your body, however much you, you feel that, 
that the relationship situation that you may find yourself in is not ideal. God is with you. God is with us. God is the God who comes into the mess and it doesn't scare him off. And I think sometimes that we shy away from this this massive idea that God loves you. God loves you because he loves you because he loves you. You don't need to try and become more spiritual to try and get more love out of God. He loves you. God loves you. He's completely present with you in the middle of wherever you are. And does he transform us? Does he change our identity? Yes, but we don't have to try and do something externally to earn that or to shore it up. God loves us. God loves you. He is with you. We can remain. Sometimes that's the hardest thing to do because life can be a pressure cooker. When you're in a situation you don't like, when you're in a job you don't like, when you're in a relationship which is really not traveling well, you can sit there and you go, I just want to run. I just want to run. And the Lord says, remain. Do you trust him? Big idea. I'm going to pray and then we're going to come around a time of, uh, of communion. We might pause and, uh, and have a chance for us to give our, our tithes and our offerings in between. Jerry, I'll ask you to pray for that, uh, to play for that. But we will, um, let's just pause and let's not rush away from this idea for a minute of remaining. Lord Jesus, I'm sure that every one of us in this room knows that apprehensive feeling where we just want to run or where we want to bail. Lord God, I'm sure that most of us in this room know that feeling of of wanting to be closer to you and just wanting to, to do something to make it happen. Lord God, would you help us to sit with you in the space where we find ourselves? And to not move, but to remain. Lord God, I know there are some of us here this morning who've got some pretty serious stuff going on. Some very difficult experiences that that have come up in life. Lord God, I ask, would you give us reassurance that you are with us? Because we need your peace. This world is not peaceful. Lord God, we need your presence abiding with us. Lord God, I ask, would you speak to us this morning, right now? Would you just speak directly to our hearts and let us know that you are with us. You are with us. God is with you this morning. God is with you. Even if the life you have is not the life you want, God is with you. And you don't need to earn his presence, he is with you. You don't need to try and impress him, he is with you. You don't need to worry that he's going to abandon you, he is with you. You don't need to worry that you are not good enough, he is with you. God is with you and he will remain with you.
Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that your desire for us is so extraordinary. It is immeasurable. Lord God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the way that you have come after us. Thank you that you have made a way where we could not make a way back to you. You have made a way to us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that you are with us. Amen.